Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Today we'll be talking about a really great novella. This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. This is a book that I first picked up to review with my co-host Belinda Misson on my other podcast, Science, Sex and Sorcery. But it was such a great read that got my brain sparking so hard, I just had to keep talking about it over here. It's a super fast read, but so densely packed with incredible and subtle world building, character development and narrative hooks that I found it impossible to put down once I'd started reading. This is How You Lose the Time War also won the 2020 Nebula Award for Best Novella, the Reddit Stabby Award for Best Novella, and the British Science Fiction Association Award for Best Novella, and the book describes itself as such. Two time-travelling agents from warring futures working their way through the past begin to exchange letters and fall in love in this thrilling and romantic book from award-winning authors Amal El Mota and Max Gladstone, among the ashes of a dying world, an agent of the Commandant finds a letter. It reads, Burn Before Reading. Thus begins an unlikely correspondence between two rival agents hell-bent on securing the best possible future for their warring factions. Now, what began as a taunt, a battlefield boast, grows into something more. Something epic. Something romantic. Something that could change the past and the future. Except the discovery of their bond would mean death for each of them. There's still a war going on, after all. And someone has to win that war. That's how war works. Right? So I should say up front that I didn't read that blurb before jumping into the novel. One of the downsides of digital book buying is that if you know the title... You can just click buy and go, and you're reading it on your device before you know what's next. Since the title was on my reading list for the year, I just snapped it up and started scrolling, thinking from that title that the book would be entirely a science fiction story about time travel. And boy, was I ever surprised when the book took a hard right turn into a correspondence romance, with a side but heavy dusting of science fiction and the book was all the more amazing for it. I really can't talk this novella up enough. Everything it sets out to do, it does exceedingly well. The prose is glorious. The voice of each character and the style of their point of view chapters pings off the page. The humour that's in there crackles. The science fiction theming is incredible, and the love story is truly engaging. By halfway through the novel, I felt I really understood these characters and the multitude of worlds that they lived in, and I cared about them. I cared about how they were going to bridge this seemingly impossible gulf between them, working for diametrically opposed and temporally incompatible versions of the future, one where the universe is completely organic and one where the universe is completely tech. Right from the outset, where we are introduced to Red, the time-spy-cum-saboteur who works for the technological faction, the Agency, the book paints a very clear picture of who these two central characters are, what their place in their respective organisations is, 
and how they feel and think about their opposite, in Red's case, Blue. More importantly, it sets the reader's expectations about the core premises from right out the gate, with the first letter that would become a series of ever more intimate correspondence between the two characters. And those instructions that are written on the front, burn before reading. As well as being a clever and interesting reversal of the common spy trope, the way in which the letter is read is the perfect example of a story taking an element and introducing it early, then building layer upon layer of additional context, one line at a time throughout the entire novel, until by the time that idea is used as a key plot point at the end, the reader has grown to understand how it works inside out, so that even a narrative which could otherwise be completely outlandish becomes completely explicable within the framework of the novel. And just to be clear before I go any further here, I am going to spoil a bit of that narrative. Honestly, I'd usually say, so stop listening if you want to avoid spoilers at this point, but so much of the value of this book is in the artistry of its prose that I'm not actually sure that spoiling parts of the narrative progression although I'll be as gentle about that as I can, will really impact the power or enjoyment of the book. So I'm just going to plough on ahead. And if you're terribly sensitive about spoilers, go read the book. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure that even knowing a bit about what happens at the end is not going to ruin this book in any way. So getting back to the point, and to frame this review in terms of looking at a book archaeologically as I'm wont to do, there are two parts of this story that I really want to dig into. The first one is, of course, the multiversal time travel and the way that impacts the narrative, because it is incredible fun and really hits all the best points of the tropes that it's built on. The second point is that core theme introduced as early as that letter instruction at the start. The theme that ran throughout this book really got my blood pumping while I was reading it, because it was, as I alluded to, this perfect textbook example of how to take something central and build it up layer by contextual layer throughout an entire narrative, until it finally has that moment where the reader's understanding of the theme just coalesces in climax with the narrative. And, in my opinion, the core theme of this book is the book's exploration of the idea of information. Getting to what I mean by that is a little involved. I mean, it took the authors an entire novella, so I'm going to start with something light and fluffy instead. The physics of time travel. Like the prose in this book, the time travel premises are really elegant without being too grandiose. On the surface, the time travel in this is really very simple. The book looks at time from the perspective of probability and multiverse theory, the idea that no moment in time is a fixed point in a linear system, and that every possibility, like whether you decide to take the bus to work or decide to drive your car on a given day, both of those possibilities occur in a timeline out there somewhere. 
just with varying degrees of likelihood. So far, so standard. So far, so standard. The gum in the engine, though, are the two major factions who are at war throughout the book, Garden and the Agency. Each of these factions come from a far distant point in the future, but from two futures which are so far removed from each other in the probability equation that they're mutually exclusive. The fully organic Garden universe cannot exist in a universe which has also evolved to contain the fully mechanised agency. And so, these two factions are doing everything they can to game the probability stats, and make sure that when the final equation is tallied, they and their future will be the 99%. It's a really cool way of looking at time travel, especially the notion of time travel that includes, or relies on, a multiverse theory. Because it tackles multiversal time travel from a perspective we don't often see, certainly in my experience. The focus of a multiversal time travel story is usually on the protagonist from the era of what we would loosely call the present. It's someone who's travelled through time and in so doing has caused a branching of the time stream. And they're usually tasked with either reconciling the universe they've created, whether intentionally or inadvertently, back with the universe that it's split from, either by stitching the two timelines back together through an event and returning things to a linear progression of time, or finding some way to get themselves from the bad future timeline that they've created and back into the other time stream where things are more desirable for them, leaving the new timeline behind just to play out as it would in any other linear time. But here in this book, you've got the time travellers coming from the other direction. Both Garden and the Agency exist at the far distant futures of their timelines, or as this book refers to them, threads of time. And both agency are looking back to those key points in time where subtle changes to the nearly infinitely branching timelines will increase the probability that those threads get woven together further down the line and result in their reality becoming that linear future. To borrow a frame of reference for this from Terry Pratchett, what we're looking at here is a classic version of the Trousers of Time, where an event at the waist sparks two future timelines that spread from that event like pant legs. One in which the event happened, and one in which the event didn't. So usually our frame of reference in time travel stories is from the waist, from those key moments where the protagonist is affecting or reacting to the time travel which changed things. In this story, though, The protagonists come from the far end of the pant legs, from the feet end, and are working their way up the trousers to the waist, hoping that a change they make at the waist point will sew up the other thread and alter the trousers of time so that it's not a set of trousers, it's just a straight tube that leads only to their end of the leg, and the other one will cease to exist. And of course, the longer the timescale you're dealing with, 
the more opportunity there are for those waste split moments to occur, which means these time-travelling agencies are forever going back and forward and back and forward along these ever-branching pathways to try to stitch them, stitch them, stitch them until there's only the one single linear reality that they want. Still with me? Great. Because now we're going to go on to talk about the subtlety of those changes and why it's so brilliant and why it was so exciting to read about the changes they were making to the timeline. It's long been a tongue-in-cheek criticism of time travel stories like The Terminator or even The Grandfather Paradox that the premise of those stories is bringing a nuke to a knife fight. The idea of going back in time and killing someone to alter the future flow of the timeline is a really drastic action, orders of magnitude above what you would actually need to affect the change that you want, and rife with potential to alter the timeline in ways that you don't intend, because you've removed not only the point of conception that is what you're focused on, but also every other interaction with the timeline that person would make throughout the rest of their life. Instead of, you know, killing Sarah Connor, the Terminator could simply travel back in time to jump out of a bedroom closet and shout boogity boo while Sarah and Carl Reese are in the middle of sexy times. Or even just knock on the bedroom door from the outside. All you have to do is interrupt the uh, rhythm of the moment and you alter the genetic makeup of the child would end up being, which alters the person that John, or maybe now Jane Connor, would grow up to become. And if your research isn't good enough to get you to that exact moment, like the Terminator having to look up the phone book for Sarah Connors would suggest that it's not in that case, all he really needs to do when he finds her is let the air out of her tyres when she's going home from work every night for the next month. And you get the same effect. Home a little later changes the outcome of the entire future. And this is the approach that Red and Blue are most often taking in this book. Although there are definitely times when the nuclear option is used, such as the opening scene where we see Red just drenched in blood following a massive and gruesome space battle, and the following scene where Blue just wipes out an entire cult with one fell hack. Many of the course corrections to history, especially as the two protagonists grow better at dancing around each other's interference, are made with incredible and increasing subtlety such as the placement of bone chimes awaiting a wind that will rattle them in such a way it inspires a particular individual being changed, or decades of sleeper cell infiltration in order to build up enough trust that the right whispered word at the right moment will make a general act in a specific way in a particular battle, or changing the way that lava will flow down a mountain so that it will take out one family instead of the other as they flee to boats. These small actions, the small alterations to the timeline in subtle places, not only work because they make things harder for the opposing team to track down and pinpoint as not only a cause of change, but also a cause which is the result of enemy action, where larger alterations such as 
a well-documented battle or a historically significant murder would be much easier to notice. But also because the way the novel introduces with the really large, obvious stuff and shifts pretty quickly to more subtle and ever more subtle means of time manipulation works in constant with the way that the letters are also presented to the reader. And together, those two facets of essentially the same thematic coin help build the reader towards an understanding they'll need for the climax of the narrative. And that's where we start to turn this review to looking at the letters, which are the other really brilliant part of this book, conceptualised as this correspondence novel, and the way that those letters convey information to the reader, while also setting the expectations for how the reader should be thinking about information as a concept. As I said before, from the opening words of that very first letter, Burn Before Reading, this book is going out of its way to promote the idea that we should be thinking about information and the way that it is delivered in an entirely different way to how we normally do. Because when you boil it right down to its most component parts, everything in our experience is information. We only experience the world through interpreting data. Everything we know about is only known because we read it somehow. Whether we know the shape of an orange because we can read it through feel, or we know the flavour of that same orange because we feel it through taste, its colour through vision. That one fruit contains a tonne of information, but we read different parts of that information differently depending on how we read it. And what is a letter but a way of conveying information between two parties? It doesn't matter if that letter is a handwritten note, or a text message, or an email. Those things are just the way that the information is presented and read. What matters is the information itself, and that is what the novel makes us consider when it presents these letters to us in ever more complex ways, at the same time that Red and Blue's interference with the time stream is becoming more and more subtle. Because, just like the time travel interference, the early letters are more visibly obvious to a reader starting to get used to this concept. The first letter in particular, with the brilliant inversion of burn before reading instead of burn after reading, immediately destabilises the reader's expectations and gets them to look at it in a new and interesting way. And other early letters are similarly not obvious, but easy enough to understand to the reader who's getting used to this idea. Things like a message hidden in computer code is eminently understandable, and even the wind being used to whistle notes is something that we can pretty easily conceptualise. But when you start getting to the way that water molecules unbind as they boil in a beaker, or the way that magma bubbles to the surface of a volcanic eruption, 
or the way that a tree's growth has been altered so that the rings will encode a message, or the flavour profile of a carefully grown seed. The methods of information delivery are getting more complex, more subtle, and harder to read. This is supported by the narrative of the book, in that red and blue need to find less easily traceable methods for communication so their corresponding agencies don't realise what's happening. And of course it stays completely on theme with the idea that coded messages are very important to novels that include spycraft. But as the methods increase in complexity alongside the ways that red and blue are fighting the war through time, also increases in subtlety, both work in constant to really get the reader thinking about information in a different way, focusing on the message of the information and not necessarily the means of conveying it. And here the sci-fi premise works really well because it's easy for the reader to grow to accept this what would otherwise be a very bizarre premise of reading messages in these ways because of just how incredibly advanced we understand these two protagonists are in comparison to us, because they are from these very far future times where the entire universe looks different after untold millennia of evolution and carefully crafted and curated development of things like science and technology and biology. And by the time that you know, you've got Red in Genghis Khan's horde reading Blue's message that's been left in the tree rings, the reader has come to expect these weird and wacky means of delivering the letters to each other, even looking out for when and where the next letter will suddenly and unexpectedly appear in the narrative. And I like the Khan's horde tree ring one in particular, because at that point, Red's own actions in the point of view scenes leading up to when she discovers the letter are itself encoding the understanding of how that letter was produced in the reader. Red spending years in the role that she's playing in order just to deliver a very specific alteration to the timeline at a specific point which requires her to have built up that trust over time so the words that she says will have weight and meaning, really mirror and reflect beautifully the way that Blue is continually travelling to this tree over a huge time span in order to make subtle little changes to its growth, which will result in the rings creating this message that Red can read. If you only presented that letter-writing aspect, it would seem really hard to understand and could be rather difficult to conceptualise as to why or how Blue would be taking such a long time to leave this message. But because you've got Red essentially doing the same thing from the war perspective, both approaches are supporting each other and providing the context in which the reader needs not only to understand, not only to accept, but to look at the premise and think, well, this is really clever. And similarly, with Red and Blue's interactions with each other, and while the what we would call the present-day protagonists don't actually interact with each other until right at the end of the book, it's their interactions with their opposite in the present time for the reader, but a point of their 
counterpart's linear past. All those moments are sort of seeded in throughout the novel, not only to build the relationship between Red and Blue, but in concert with the way that the reader is learning to think about information, is a requirement for the climax and how Red rebuilds herself to enter Garden and make the key alteration to Blue right at the very end of these timelines. The very, very distant future, but for which the protagonists is their own beginning, their very, very past, in their linear experience of this multiversal time. Because once you've spent an entire novella teaching the reader to think about information as a concept rather than as a material thing, and where you've learned to divorce the concept of information away from the physicality of how the information is conveyed, then you can understand how Blue has been grown over time. You understand that when she speaks in her letters of being a bird, being a rock, being this, that, or the other, and gradually that information being gathered together by Garden over millennia and grown into a sentient creature that Red can then fiddle with, hack, if you will, this incredibly bizarre principle becomes really easy to comprehend. And it's the type of comprehension that Although the reader might not realise they're being prepared to understand as all those bits fall in place throughout the course of the novel and additional context is built around that central theme of information, the reader is still being led towards that point of realisation where they understand what's going on and can feel really clever for seeing how the novel has done it and how the characters have pulled off the narrative climax. Because in a book like this, with time travel and extreme future tech, it would be really, really easy for the book to just pull out a deus ex machina right at the end and have red or blue do something science fiction-y to resolve the central narrative conflict, to resolve the point where red and blue have no choice but to attack each other for their agencies. Blue could very easily have done a Princess Bride and have been immune to Red's poison. Or Garden could have injected her with something after her body's death and brought her back to life. Those are the sort of things that we're more used to seeing in science fiction and fantasy, and the book could honestly have got away with if it really wanted to. The incredibly advanced future tech that we're dealing with makes that a pretty easy sell. But the elegance of this book lies in the fact that the authors don't do that. They don't pull the answer to this love story out of nowhere. They use the strong and the densely woven context of the world they've built to deliver the answer that will let red and blue exist together. And the climax is so much more powerful because the writers have taken the time to do that throughout the entire novella. So, those are my barely coherent thoughts 
on The Incredible. This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Mota and Max Gladstone. And if my ranting about it here hasn't put you off it completely, I highly recommend you give it a read. As I said, it's relatively short, you can easily blow through it in a few hours, and even the little hints and spoilers I've dropped throughout here will not take away from the absolute delicious elegance of the prose and the sheer mind-boggling skill with how the authors pull together all these threads across the course of the entire novel. Next week, I'll be going on a little bit of a rant again, talking about a writing trope that I've seen in a few books over the past year or so, and to be honest, one that I don't really care for. And that's the urban fantasy idea of supernatural creatures such as elves, fairies, warlocks and the like, who look exactly like you and me, regular humans, in every single way, until they choose not to. I'll be going into some of the reasons why I don't think that trope is done particularly well most of the time that it's seen, and why and where it might be appropriate to use as a world-building concept. But until then, I hope you have a great week. Have you read This Is How You Lose the Time War and have a different take on what the book is about? I'd love to chat it over, either on the Talking Fiction Discord server or on the socials. Hell, even by email. Let's keep the conversation going because, as always, I look forward to talking to you again soon.